Lord, speeding through the fast lane They say I know magic, how my wish change They don't see what I see Don't miss the game, you know it's past me Still the honey, you know I'm on no more Play with my dog, you know I'm on on go Bottles on bottles, you know I'm on on go Moving too fast, you know we on Hello and welcome to FilmWalk, this is Glenn, I'm here with Daniel. Hello! And tonight we're going to be reviewing a 1959 film, Look Back in Anger, from director Tony Richardson and starring Richard Burton. But first, we are going to be checking out the return of Justin Lin to the Fast and Furious franchise with Fast and Furious 9. Y'all ever thought about the wild missions we've been on? We've taken out planes, trains, tanks. I'm not going to even think about the submarines. <laughs> And now we got cars flying in the air? Who is he? Jacob is... Dom's brother. It's a long time, Dom. Little brother. You always say never turn your back on family. But you turned your back on me. Now your little family... is in my world. Whatever's on you. Is you ready? It's on us. Are you ready? He's got his own private army. We need help. No way. Is you ready? So how do y'all want to play this? Fast. We That was from the trailer of Fast and Furious 9, also known as F9 the Fast Saga. Directed by Justin Lin and starring Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez, Tyrese Gibson, Ludacris, John Cena, Jordana Brewster, Natalie Emanuel, Soon Kang, Michael Rooker, Helen Mirren, Kurt Russell, and Charlize Theron. This franchise is stacked, Daniel. It has been going for nine movies now. They they scarcely even need to justify getting the crew back together to chase a MacGuffin around the world. They began as street racers and DVD thieves, and they are now super spies on par with the Mission Impossible crew who just need to solve whatever world-ending gadget needs to be sought out by characters who barely even trouble to name themselves. Kurt Russell, who orders them around at this point in their career, is literally known as Mr. Nobody. Daniel, this film features a few departures from the previous uh, franchise. We no longer have screenwriter Chris Morgan involved here, who has been writing these, I believe, since uh, Fast Five. Um, Screenwriter Daniel Casey and Justin Lin wrote the script for this one. And uh, there's definitely a noticeable change in, I guess I would say, content and uh, and style, um, but not really in tone. We still have this earnest sense of family and camaraderie, and with just like a light dash of religion in there, amid just indiscriminate, ridiculous violence and car-related stunts. And uh, these these films, they basically deliver an expected product at this point. And uh, I think that adding a dash of self-awareness, as this movie did, these people are basically talking like they're in a Scream movie, where they're saying, like, you know, if this were a movie, this would be the time when blah blah happens. Nonetheless, the, the franchise continues to uh, to crack on. I mean, they're doing, they're doing new things with cars, they're doing new things with characters who began their lives in this franchise as literal MacGuffins. Uh, Natalie Emanuel as Ramsey was, uh, was one that they had to extract from a mountain pass by dropping cars out of an airplane, and she barely did anything in that film, as hackers usually do. Uh, and now, you know, she's she's with the gang. She's driving the cars, possibly for the first time in her life. And, uh, is you know, she's doing stuff. Uh, we got another MacGuffin as uh, as human in this uh, film with the character of Elle. And I expect she's probably going to join the crew and, uh, d- and do some stuff in the next movie. These films, they deliver a certain set of expectations, and they generally deliver on them. 
I'm curious, Daniel, do they kind of run together for you at this point, or is there anything that will make you think back on this film specifically uh, in a fond or specific manner? Well, that's a great question, Glenn. You know, I, uh, this is my first movie back in a theater since the pandemic started, so this is my uh, reemergence into the world of cinema in the movie theater setting. With the Fast series, I have zero expectations going in. Physics aren't going to matter. I know the character relationships are going to be talked about endlessly, but not really matter. Consistent. They're going to be consistent. They're family at the beginning of the movie, and they will be family at the end, no matter what happens. Uh, I know that consequences of anything they do will not matter. Uh, This movie is ridiculous and very stupid, and I laughed a lot. In the theater, probably the most I've laughed since, like, a proper comedy when I was younger in the theater. Like, I was laughing throughout this film. I was highly entertained. This movie's silly. Like, the whole franchise is silly. They do weird stuff with cars at this point that make no sense. I'm really just waiting for a Transformers crossover movie at this point. Well, we did have a brief moment in Car Heaven in this film. (laughs) Right, we went to Car Heaven, so that was exciting. I have to say, like, the, the... the parts of, of uh, the Fast series that work for me are the, just the action set pieces because they're ridiculously fun. Even though, even though they make very little sense and like hundreds of people will have been killed in each one of these uh, set pieces, I, I think they're wonderfully shot and they're wonderfully entertaining. I was less interested in, I guess, Dom's backstory because I think I think the movie has too much Dom. At this point, he's really not that interesting of a character. I'd rather explore some of the other characters. Like, I want a Letty movie, to be honest. Like, have her do some cool stuff, because Michelle Rodriguez totally deserves to have her own film at this point. Well, they killed Letty off, and then they brought her back, but she had amnesia, and then they had to fill in her backstory already. So they've, they've done a little bit of a Letty movie in terms of what she was up to, you know, over there, off screen, while the uh, crew carried on uh, without her for one movie. But... I think that uh, I'm actually going to kind of disagree with you. I thought the backstory stuff, I, I'll be, I. They went we to op- car heaven, Glenn. When we open, <laughs> <laughs> when we open on a scene with, uh, at, at the track where we, we see a scene that has been talked about in multiple films, going back to the first one of Dom watching his father burn to death while doing a, uh, a race in the 1980s when Dom wasn't a kid, like I was picturing him as, but of course he does beat a guy nearly to death with a wrench. So there's a, a certain amount of adulthood implied there. They brought in this guy, Vinnie Bennett, to play young Dom, and uh, they also brought in uh, Finn Cole to play young Jacob Toretto, uh, who is the character played by John Cena in this film, who is a heretofore unseen uh, Toretto brother, uh, who is the, uh, I guess, the third Toretto sibling after Dom and Mia. Yeah, as uh, Ryan George would say on uh, pitch meetings, oh, secret brothers are tight. Other than these actors not looking all that much like the characters they were meant to play, you know this about me. That never really bothers me all that much. That's like so hard. Cho- That's so hard to cast. Yeah. Any choice that you're going to make, as long as it is thematically and tonally and practically consistent, does not really bother me. If you want to de-age the characters, it's fine as long as you do it well. If you want to cast younger actors, that's fine. If you want to put a stupid wig on the characters, which is obviously not an option for Vin Diesel, <laughs> uh, then... Yeah, put a put a no, bald wig. That's, on, no, that's that's the backstory I want. Like he has luscious locks, but then he shaves it <laughs> off when he gets super serious about things. So you you want him to wear the "How I Met Your Mother" young Ted wig? Yeah, <laughs> young Ted wig. That'd be very good. Uh, you know, I think the whole secret brother thing was silly, but whatever. I mean, John Cena's not even Italian. Like he's a, he's a, <laughs> not even a little. Bit. He's a Bostonian. Like 
Come on. But like, whatever, it works. Like, it, 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 it works. It's fine. What we need for that scene is a reason why this guy has been absent from Dom's life this whole time. And it's because Dom banished him. And it's because Dom holds him responsible for their father's death. So I have to say, to introduce this backstory and to really uh, to really dwell upon it for the length of time that it takes to depict this entire race and uh, and... I don't know, it kind of worked for me. It, it fits with the earnestness of the rest of this. The idea that Dom, a guy who believes in family above all else, would banish his brother. He needs a good fucking reason to do that, and thinking that his brother murdered his father is a good reason. I think the Loser Leaves Town drag race was pretty amusing. <laughs> like, especially because of just how they use the nitro. Like, you know, they're basically timing it just the millisecond. I'm like, oh god, this is so silly, but whatever. Every use of NOS in a Fast and Furious race is exactly the same. Whoever does it second wins, and whoever did it first loses. Right, because of reasons, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if I were racing in one of these races, I would simply wait for my opponent to use NOS first, and then I would pull ahead with my NOS, because that's how it works. That's how, that's how it works, yeah. It's, it's all psychological. Uh, this movie's fine. Like, I don't know if we want to do proper uh, proper spoiler section for it, but, what can we really say here? I mean, Shirley's well, there as, one... as Cypher is behind this, and she's she's hanging out in basically a warehouse for almost the entire movie. She's in a magneto box doing a Hannibal Lecter impersonation. Like, what is she doing? Doing a Hannibal Lecter impersonation and also, like, dropping Star Wars references. <laughs> they've, they've also got Elon Musk in this movie, and uh, it's a, uh, I believe it's a Swedish actor playing a guy named Otto, but he's basically Elon yeah, Musk. Yeah, he's Elon Musk. Uh, and... Cypher, not important. <laughs> Cypher, Charlie Theron had the line of the night that made me, I still think about days later and crack up. <laughs> she said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but she said, I read your second grade report card. Yeah, I'm the one who does that. Or, or something to that effect. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell was that line? <laughs> if there's one thing that a second grade report card is, it's illustrative of who somebody is. <laughs> no kidding. The writer wrote that down. Like, it was like, oh yeah, this is a sick burn. <laughs> so, Daniel, I think we can go ahead and talk about uh, what happens. I, I guess I would say the one big set piece that happens here, because I'm going to go ahead and say that anything that gets revealed in the trailer for this film is fair game. Sure. So uh, this is as close to a spoiler warning as we are going to give for this film. Uh, if you don't want to hear about what happens with specific uh, stunts and set pieces in this film, then go ahead and tune out. But uh, I would say broadly, I enjoyed this film about as much as I enjoyed The Fate of the Furious. I think I'll probably end up thinking about it about as much. I think it definitely recycled a handful of set pieces from The Fate of the Furious, uh, with cars being pulled one way or the other and being sort of thrown at uh, cars being thrown at one vehicle or another. It, it felt like they were rehashing a few things. But at the same time, there were definitely at least two distinct set pieces here that I have never seen before in this franchise. So they're still innovating. They're still doing interesting stuff. Um, it's all ridiculous. They're tossing people back and forth like catcher's mitts with their cars. And uh, it's, you know, if, if you if you enjoyed that stuff in the previous films, there is plenty more here. Uh, Daniel, any final thoughts before we get into quote-unquote spoilers? Yeah, I think the series is spinning its wheels a little bit in terms ah. of... Uh, uh, get it? Get it? Because it's a car thing? Um, I mean, I, or, or how about this? I think the series has hit the NOS too early. I think that they're running out of things to do. Um, it, it's bigger set pieces, and it's crazier set pieces, and they're superheroes, whatever. But it's all very samey. And I, I think that if there's, I guess, two more movies of this coming out, I don't know what else you can do at, at this point. And like, hey, look, they made $300 million in China after John Cena said Taiwan is a country. So, right. you know, fantastic. They're going to still make money hand over fist. You know, uh, Vin Diesel's still going to be a 
a, he's going to be like a billionaire at the end of this. So like fantastic, but yeah, I believe as of this recording, it's made 400 million worldwide. Yeah. I guess I don't, I don't know. Like this felt like a good ending for the series, honestly, at the conclusion of this film. I you, just, you know, it's not right. There I, are going to be two more. Of oh these. no, I know there'll be other Toretto's that come out of the woodwork. Like, Oh, this is my other father. You know, like whatever. I, I guess I, I feel like, the series is ridiculous action set pieces. You know what to expect going into it. There's some funny moments unintentionally and some intentionally. The series is definitely aware of what it's supposed to be. So it's very entertaining. I just don't know how much more entertaining it could be moving forward. Yeah, I'm kind of with you that uh, this was a fine film to return to the movie theater with. Uh, the last I, I went and saw a, uh, a repertory performance of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I called it a repertory performance, but it was the Dolby Atmos remaster of that put out by Edgar Wright. There, it was an excellent film to see in the theater for the first time in over a year. But as a brand new blockbuster, seeing it on, on a, I guess I would say, medium-sized screen was, uh, was definitely a pleasurable experience. Our first one for the podcast since Onward uh, in March of last year. So. Yeah, I have to say when the current started the poll on the theater screen i got a little bit of a thrill i'm not gonna lie i was like "Ooh, something's happening something that hasn't happened for me in a while (laughs) yeah and something that we can't be on our phones we can't be wandering off we can't pause the thing and go get a snack like we're just here for this for the next like that that experience is still special and these ridiculous blockbusters are a special experience to me and uh but that said I think that a I think that a blockbuster that tries to stand for something that is greater than itself thematically, it needs to be something that persists. And when I think of what it needs to be something that remains relevant. And this franchise, I think, has done a pretty good job of moving of just sort of navigating from one style to the next as needed, because, you know, for a while it was about street racing, which feels like a very 90s extreme sports kind of pursuit. And then they moved on seamlessly to we are an international heist team. And then they moved on pretty seamlessly from that to we are just Mission Impossible at this point. But, of course, the Mission Impossible franchise and the James Bond franchise has continued in the meantime. So we have those those same kinds of, you know, we've got the big set pieces. We've got the attempt to draw thematic continuity between them, uh, even though each movie is kind of still its own weird thing, but also kind of hitting many of the same notes. I guess my question for, for you is how would you say these franchises compare to each other at this point? in terms of justifying themselves, in terms of giving themselves a reason to exist. You know, between Fast 9 or the Fast series and, like, Mission Impossible? Uh, sure. I would say those are the two that are probably the closest to each other, although I've heard more than one critic refer to this as the American James Bond. I guess this is more James Bond than Mission Impossible. No, I don't know, because Mission Impossible still has teamwork involved, yeah. and James Bond has always been, like, a solo endeavor. This is more like Mission Impossible, but it's starting to edge into like Avengers territory, where right. they're just basically superheroes in cars. <laughs> and yeah, Mission Impossible is it's also known for its awesome, ridiculous stunts, but it's all about what's the craziest thing we can make Tom Cruise do. So it's very focused on him and whatever physical set pieces we can manage for that. The stuff that they're pursuing for those films, it, it, it is usually some world-ending threat, but it ne- that never really feels like the point. It's just let's let's do another Tom Cruise superhero film. This does have a bit of an Avengers vibe to it. I would I would give that to you. Yeah, it's let's all let's all let's get the whole team together and let's go fight whatever the latest MacGuffin is. Right, and the MacGuffin is always some world-ending threat. In this case, it's a master satellite that can, or it's a master technology that can overwhelm and control all satellites, both present and future. 
Yeah, it's it's spherical and it looks like the Matrix. And also, uh, there's a human component to it. Yeah, as well. so it's a Pokeball. And does the girl, does L go in the Pokeball? Is that how it works? You said you said at the time you, you half expected her to get sucked inside that thing, and it, it has a very Matrixy kind of feel to it. Uh, just looking looking at the outside. Well, of she was thing. the key, right? So I was like, well, the key has to go inside the Pokeball, right? Like that's how this Absolutely. works. Now she just kind of touches it from the outside, and that unlocks it, and it can do its thing. But that was a missed opportunity for a Pokemon crossover. I have to hand it to Mission Impossible Three because they went ahead and identified a MacGuffin in that film, but they they didn't ever bother to explain what it actually was. Uh, the closest thing to an explanation that we got was with Simon Pegg's character, and he basically said, "Whenever we're sent to track down one of these things, I just think of it as the anti-god." Uh, you know, it's the thing that destroys life. It's the thing that will end the world. And I don't really need to know what it is. Whatever it is, we need to get it and keep it out of the bad guy's hands. And to the extent that that felt like a bit of self-awareness about that franchise, I think that it's self-awareness in a different way. The Mission Impossible franchise was less about self-awareness about the world-ending threat so much as self-awareness that the world-ending threat doesn't matter all that much. Like, we've just got to hop from one place to another dressed in cool clothes and doing cool stunts. Whereas this feels like it is a world-ending threat, but ultimately what we care more about is our is, is our family and how we're gonna how we're gonna bounce around between cars. I don't know. It feels like there's a subtle difference in tone between these two things. Mission Impossible feels more self-important, even though they both feel equally disinterested in what the specific MacGuffin. Well, is. Mission Impossible feels more like a proper spy franchise because it's usually spy versus spy, right? And this feels like it's more of uh, Avengers-esque in the, in the sense that they're fighting like an Elon Musk character, right? They're fighting one big bad who's trying to do a bad thing. And it's not necessarily skill versus skill, but it's more of squad versus squad. Yeah, one super team versus another. And, th- and that is an element that I think is in the Mission Impossible films. We are the good guys, and by we, I mean the United States military industrial. Hell yeah. This operation. So the idea of when I compare a scene like Roman Pierce in this film, uh, you know, they, they literally invade Mexico in this film. They go to a particular province and they're being fought by the Mexican army that is trying to reach Mr. Nobody's plan before them. And they're like mowing down mem- like hundreds of members of the Mexican no army. No consequences. No consequences. Like, if the Mission Impossible crew did this, this would be an act of war. If these guys are doing this, it's an act of mass criminality along the lines of what the cartel does down there. So, like, I think that they're both trying to they're both trying to be able to retain a certain measure of whatever we do is good, as evidenced by the fact that we're doing it. And but I think that Fast and the Furious doesn't bother to even justify that at this point. Yeah, I I agree. So, shall we uh, get uh, some spoilers, or are we doing a spoiler Uh, section? Yeah, I, I think that um, the only thing that we have to talk about uh, spoiler-wise is the thing that I said we weren't going to do a proper spoiler warning for, which is that they go into space. Oh, I thought it was uh, Han returning. I don't know. I think I mean I mentioned Soon Kang in my in my cast list above, but does it really even count as a spoiler at this point? Like, it's not so much that he, we know he survived being blown up, so much as we we just need to learn how he survived being blown I guess, up. but I thought that was, that was the one constant in the film was, or in the series was, well, Hong's dead. <laughs> Hong is the only casualty. Hong's death was the, was the reason why we had to have the chronological order of these films all shuffled up because they introduced this character of Han, but they wanted to have him back for four five and six. So they just had those movies canonically take place before fast and furious Tokyo drift. Uh, he was not the only casualty. They also killed off, uh, Giselle, who was Gal Gadot's, uh, character. Oh, gotcha. Cause she had to, uh, she had, to, and she briefly makes an appearance in this film as well. Uh, as wonder flashbacks. woman, right? <laughs> yes. As wonder woman. 
It's like, the person you knew is dead. I'm back. I'm the god killer. So you know how I, I could tell if they're superheroes? Because Han beat UFC heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou in a, in a fight in a vehicle. And that would oh. not happen in real life because Ngannou would murder Han. <laughs> I mean, Ngannou is able to fight well in the octagon, but how well can he fight in the cockpit of a vehicle? I don't know. It's like that, that might be an even match there. He's used to being able to reach. I, I, I saw some uh, clean blows land on Han, and Han ate them like they were a sandwich and asked for another. I'm like, no, no, you will be dead. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, we had a few. We had a couple other guys who were identified as having cauliflower ears by uh, by Roman and Tej before they immediately like jump them and beat them up. I'm not even sure we saw their cauliflower. Cauliflower ears. ears just means you're a wrestler. It doesn't mean that you're a great striker. I, 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 that comment made no sense. What they assumed was it meant that they had fought professionally, but then the very next thing we see is them getting knocked out with like with like a single blow. Yeah, so, I don't know. Uh, who else do we have? We have Helen Mirren in this film as Queenie uh, Shaw, who is the mother of Owen and Deckard Shaw, one of whom is deceased. And uh, now, as much as I love Helen Mirren showing up in this film, clearly having an affinity with Vin Diesel, uh, she's just ever so briefly in the film. She makes a crack about his family and how he how he and his brother are apparently at odds with each other. Like, didn't one of your sons kill the other in his hospital bed? Like, th- that happened. It's all about family, Glenn. It's all about family. Come to think of it, there's a third Shaw sibling as well who was introduced in Hobson Hobson Shaw. Uh, We're just gonna find new family members. This is how the series will extend. Is that like we'll have to fight like Dom's mother next, and she's like, I'm also working for some evil bad person for reasons. Yeah, I mean Vin Diesel has worked with uh, with British film royalty at this point with uh, Helen Mirren, and uh, he's also worked with Judy Dench um, in the uh, Chronicles of Reddick. I'm trying to think what high class British actor he's gonna work with next, but. Cumberbatch? Yeah, you know what? I think I think we should just write the next one. Like, because I'm pretty sure we could do cool stuff with magnets, too. Probably, yeah. I mean, the, the magnets in this film were an excuse to toss cars around, and they functioned exactly as they needed to from moment to moment for each stunt to work. I actually saw a video on uh, on Twitter from Justin Lin the other day that showed that that, that moment where they suck the car, th- where, they, where they, they, they pull the car through the building into the back of the truck, they did that for real. Oh, that was cool. a real stunt. But they also, they did it for real, but they finished it off with so much CGI, including the way that the truck wobbles and then bounces back into place and keeps going. That is an entirely CGI truck when it lands. Mm-hmm. So I don't really understand why they bothered doing it for real. Like, it, it's it's an odd feeling to, because for the most part, the cars in the Fast and Furious franchise look real. You know, Dom has his signature, in addition to having his uniform of uh, of either a clean, pristine white t-shirt uh, or a uh, or a white like cable knit sweater. Uh, those are the two things that Dom wears at this point. He's also got a signature Dodge Charger. So the vehicles and, and Letty has a signature car. Um, Paul Walker, despite being dead, has a signature car. Like the, it, there are a few specific visual characteristics of this franchise. But I expect those cars and things to do ridiculous things, and I expect some CGI enhancement to be happening there as they're getting tossed around the screen. And that there's a certain amount of that expected here. But why would you bother ripping a car through a building if you're just going to if you're going to supplement it with a bunch of CGI stuff getting ripped apart inside of that building and then a CGI truck for it to smash into? I just I, I don't get it. Like they staged the stunt for real and then they faked it in the computer. I'd love to see what the actual script looked like for this. Yeah, I don't know. Like how do you Car, depict how do you boom, how do you write the script for the action scenes? Like how would you describe them? I would imagine the actual answer to this is there's a there's sort of a description of the action scenes, but there's probably a lot more storyboarding and there's probably a lot of work with the stunt team 
uh, and and sort of uh, you know animatics being created for like okay here is the role that this set piece needs to create like here's where everybody needs to be at the beginning here's where they need to be at the end and then everything we fill in in between is not really so much the subject of screenwriting as it is of stunt design yeah that's my guess of having yeah I wonder if there's like two separate scripts right there's the stunt script and then there's the you know, the, the dialogue script because I can't really wrap my head around how difficult it would be to describe what happens from moment to moment in these scenes. Because there's this, everybody has to be in all these different places. There's all there's all this description from each you know cut as to like what's happening that I can't imagine capturing that very well in a script unless you have like a separate like stunt script or something like that. Yeah, do you just need a 3D like Visio diagram of where everybody's going to be flowing from one one part to the next? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a lot to keep track of, but they're certainly not the first blockbuster that has had this problem. I mean, the uh, Mission Impossible and Marvel and, and and DC and any of these films have multiple things happening at once, often with uniform intensity going on in between them, or the timing being such that one one set piece is going to need to interact with another as they as they merge with each other. So, uh, I don't know. They figured it out. They must have methods for this. Well, Daniel, shall we crack on? I got nothing else to say. Well, that was Fast and the Furious Nine. By and large, delivered what you expected it to deliver. I would say quality-wise, about on par with with the fate of the Furious. But we, have, as it turns out, we had a bit more to say about it. I think this franchise's earnestness continues to be its strength. I'll be honest; I was expecting to be more bothered by the extended flashback with young Dom and young Jacob than I was, but it kind of worked. What did you think of, of John Cena in this film? I thought John Cena looked very silly in the cars because he's such a huge person, and they put him in small cars. I, I thought. That- I was a problem, yes. I thought that John Cena did a fine job for what he was asked to do. Barking orders, sneering, looking tough. Like, John Cena's great at that stuff, right? Fight scenes that uh, Cena was in, he did fine. I would assume he would as a pro wrestler. You know, he understands, like, choreography. I didn't understand how he couldn't beat uh, Dom in a fight because John Cena could absolutely destroy Vin Diesel in a fight. Well, but, because they're brothers, and they need to be equally matched. That's the only reason. Okay, when John Cena hands over the keys at the end of the film to Dom, like, John Cena's hand is, like, bigger than Dom's head. <laughs> <laughs> well, you remember, they've gone there before. Vin Diesel versus The Rock in one of the previous films. Like, you just have to accept that the Hollywood actor and the professional fighter uh, are, are just going to be equally matched for the purposes of this. I think Ronda Rousey was in one yeah. scene. I think they had Gina Carano in one one of these scenes. They they always had to drag out some UFC person for Michelle Rodriguez to fight. But yeah, there's always there's always somebody, and it's a boss fight, and the heroes always win. Like that's just how it goes. Yeah, um, yeah. But otherwise, I thought I thought Singer did fine. I I think that uh, it'd be interesting to see if he's included in future uh, fast movies. Unpacking what his motivations are. I think they, they do drift around over the course of the film, but I, I, I enjoyed this character. I enjoyed where they went with him. I'm happy to see him continuing in the franchise here. And I think that John Cena, who is somebody we've seen be both a skilled stunt performer as well as a skilled comedian in previous films, is a pretty solid villain in this. And I think I think he's probably drifting toward anti-hero status in the same way as uh, as The Rock did in, this, in the previous films, but... I think he's going to do fine. John Cena is always somebody I enjoy seeing on screen. I think he was. Uh, I think at this point, there's a, a bit of a rivalry on film Twitter as to which uh, which person between John Cena, The Rock, and Dave Bautista is the is the most skilled actor. In addition to being a physically imposing dude, uh, Cena. I think that's a hard question to answer because I think the ways in which we evaluate those performers is different from people who. I guess I would say look like everyone else. Like Cena, because Cena could carry a movie. He could carry a comedy by himself. Uh, I think better than The Rock can, and uh, Batista. Batista's a great secondary character, but I don't think he's a lead. 
per se. Did you ever see Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead? No, I have. I know. I know Batista's the lead in that, and from what I read, Batista is the lead in that, and most of the praise of his acting at this point comes from that. Uh, comes from his performance in that film. Yeah, he is very. I'm good not knocking Batista at all. I think he's great. Uh, I guess. I guess think Cena can carry a movie better than uh, The Rock or Batista can. I'm actually. I'm not saying a lot because Rock, The Rock has carried many movies. Um, I guess the Casino has possibly been better acting chops. Yeah, Batista at this point in his career is just like, yeah, I don't want to be a stunt performer for the rest of my life. And he's talking about how he wants to play Ernest Hemingway or somebody really unlikely, like somebody who looks nothing like himself. And I'm like, that at least suggests a little bit of ambition. Yeah, good for uh, him. On his part. John Cena, I think, has, you know, he started off as just sort of a physical, let's do WWE films kind of kind of guy. And he's kind of trying to go, trying to move on from there, trying to expand his comedy repertoire. So uh, Cena, I think of the three is the one that I am, I most consistently expect to smile whenever he's on screen. So um, I think I'm with you on that. He's my favorite. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Fast 9. If you have any feedback on our discussion, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our discussion of Look Back in Anger. This is Jimmy Porter who learned at an early age what it was like to be angry. Angry and helpless. Peter, out of my sight! If only something, something would happen to waken you from your beauty sleep. If you could have a child, and it would die. Jimmy Porter, who lives and loves with an intensity altogether frightening. It's hardly a moment when I'm not watching and wanting you. Nearly two years of being in the same room with you and I still can't stop my sweat breaking out and I see you doing something as ordinary as leaning over an ironing board. Audience reaction has been swift and startling. So much to shock people. The black hatred, the hurt, and the anger. For your own sake, don't ever do that again. I have no public school scruples about hitting girls. If you slap my face, by God, I lay you out. Come out of it quick, eh? That was from the trailer of Look Back in Anger, the 1959 film from director Tony Richardson, based on the play by John Osborne and written for the screen by Nigel Neal. This film stars Richard Burton as Jimmy Porter. He's supposed to be about 25. Richard Burton is in his mid-30s as he's playing this character, but he is a he is a young, intelligent, educated, musically talented young man uh, who is uh, in the in post-war Britain and works in a shit retail job, uh, a sweet stand in the uh, in, a, in an outdoor marketplace. Uh, he is married to Allison Porter, played by Mary Urie, uh, who uh, is from a rich family and uh, upper middle uh, class. He, Upper middle class is how it's put, yeah. And then they have a lodger named Cliff Lewis, who's played by Gary Raymond. Now, Jimmy Porter is... He's a gigantic asshole. Uh, he is somebody who is deeply dissatisfied with his life. He's deeply dissatisfied with his place in society. And he is able, because he is so well-educated, he is able to articulate all of the ways in which he hates his life and hates his wife uh, at length and while dropping literary references and uh, while generally being very entertaining. So... This film is almost an act of sadism to watch because you're watching this guy just verbally, psychologically, and occasionally physically abuse his wife and his lodger, and also himself. It falls into this category of the angry young man, a term that was actually used to describe John Osborne's play, Look Back in Anger, which spawned an entire series of these films, these films in post-war Britain in the 50s and 60s, of people who felt... Uh, disaffected as members of the working classes that they didn't really have any place in the new version of Britain that uh, you know they fought to preserve their country in uh, in war and their country is kind of just the way it always was with the rich people getting richer and uh, and their lives kind of just still being shit so 
Daniel, uh, we picked this film, I think, just because we wanted something that was old and iconic to uh, to focus on. And this is a film that I've been interested in for a while. I think it's uh, Film Spotting reviewed it about a decade ago. But uh, what made you interested in this film? Uh, I thought the synopsis uh, that you sent over was intriguing. Uh, you know, college graduate, angry at life. Uh, you know, a, a film from the you know late fifties. I was like, oh, cool. I'll, I'll check this out. Knew nothing else about it. Opening, you know, opening scene. Uh, you know, uh, we we you know, open the curtains here, and I was like, oh, Richard Burton's in this film, and I was like, wow, he's such an asshole. And that I didn't need coffee. I I was you know I watched it in the morning. I was like, ah, I might need coffee for this. It might be kind of a, a slow burn type movie. And after that first scene, I was like, no, nope, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good without caffeine for a while. Watching somebody be that emotionally and verbally abusive towards another person is is stressful. <laughs> and he earns no happiness. He deserves no happiness. And, and yet you kind of want to root for him a little bit because like some of the things that he's saying is true, right? Uh, like class distinctions. But boy, Allison does not deserve this life. And I, I really, what I liked was the play was revolutionary at the time uh, when it was, uh, came out in 1956 because it spawned the kitchen sink dramas. So the idea of like a, a like a inner family drama, like in, in like a, a flat as opposed to, you know, traditional like Shakespearean theater, like having an ironing board was a big this deal. This is as opposed to having an upper crust drama about rich people, basically, either about royals or about politicians or about right. uh, people who are connected with the aristocracy. And that's typically what you get with an upper crust film. We reviewed one of these uh, from the 1970s, uh, just la- just in our previous right. podcast. Right, that's, that's my go-to. That's what I'm here for. But yeah. I have to say, like, the claustrophobia I felt just being in that flat. That like, one-room flat. That well, I guess it's sort of a two-room flat, but yeah. Good lord, like, there's no escape. And one of my favorite just little moments in the film is the footsteps as he's getting closer and closer coming into the house. You know, like you can hear him coming up the stairs. You can hear him getting closer. Like I felt anxiety for Allison. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I know he's not going to hit her, although he threatens to, but the emotional uh, abuse that he spews is just hard to watch, but also very enthralling because Richard Burton is really good at it. He is outstanding, yes. I guess what I would say, you have to believe a lot for this setup to work. You have to believe... so. Each of these three principal performers here. So we have Mary Yuri as Alison Porter, and she, and again, very clearly does not deserve this uh, this treatment. But there is a real issue at the heart of their marriage that is the subject matter of his rants, which is that he believes that she and her family look down on him and think that he is beneath them because he's from the lower classes, and he's very he's very much got a chip on his shoulder about that. And what we don't know at the beginning of the film is how much that is true. What we get from Allison's attitude is that she's just trying to keep the peace. She does not look down on him, but he's pointing out he's pointing out a lot of things that might be real or might not be. Like he's reading her letters, he's reading her journal and she doesn't mention him. But like that could be, be like he thinks it's because she looks down on him because of his class. It could just be because she's miserable with him because he treats her so poorly. So, like, there's a bit of a snake eating its own tail when it comes to what this guy's problem is. Um, we don't really know until we uh, until we meet Allison's family whether Jimmy has a point about how they treated him, about how they regarded him, whether they approved of the marriage or not. And I appreciated that the movie handled that with a fair amount of nuance. 
I think that it acknowledged that Allison's family did look down on him and didn't approve of this marriage, but it didn't regard them as monstrous for that. It didn't. Uh, it didn't turn them into these these upper crust caricatures of themselves. Colonel Regfern is only in like two scenes, but he just seems like a good elder statesman like character. Like he doesn't seem like a bad dude, except for his. Well, the dog's old. We should put it down. <laughs> that was random. Like, and we have we have to take that a little bit with a grain of salt because we don't ever really see him interact with Jimmy in the film. True. And we don't know how we don't know how many shouting matches there were between those two. We don't know how many hostile letters or anything else between those. And what we have is is Colonel Redfern realizing that his daughter's marriage is is breaking up, and and he could be getting what he wants out of this. You know, he could be getting his daughter back. And even then, he is still. He's still telling her, like, hey, this is a big deal, leaving your, you know, leaving your marriage behind here. Are you sure you want to do this? And that is ultimately what's at stake here, is that everybody's treating their marriage like it's like it's an important thing. Even the dysfunctional members of this marriage are treating it like it's an important thing. And that is what is so fascinating as the, uh, as the film goes on. And that's before we even introduce Helena Charles, uh, played by Claire Bloom. It's definitely a testament to the time, right? Because the simple solution to all of this is... Well, Jimmy needs to go into therapy and they need to divorce. That's the movie. Roll credits. Allison divorces him and then he goes to therapy for like five years and then realizes that maybe he thinks a little bit too highly of himself and maybe he's angry at the wrong things. I don't know, but like, it's definitely a good testament to like the 1950s, like that attitude. And honestly, like this place, autobiographical, John Osborne is talking about his relationship with his first wife. Oh, is that right? First of, I, I think, this. six wives. He hates women. Oh, good Lord. Spoilers, the John Osborne hates women. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he marries a bunch of them. And uh, this is uh, about his uh, his attitudes towards his first wife, who I believe was a actress, and uh, his feelings towards uh, her and her family looking down on him. It's him working through his own issues. It is very interesting to see how sympathetic Allison comes off in light of that. I'm curious how much of that was in the play versus how much of that was in the directorial choices by Tony Richardson. From what I've read was so different different uh, in the play uh, adaptations. Uh, the people who play Jimmy, that opening scene where he's just berating Allison. And some of the actors take that as uh, they play it off as more of a joke. That he's, he's saying these things, but it's more jokey as opposed to what we get from the film which is Richard Burton means every word of this. I think in the f- I think in the film it's a mix of that because him and Cliff are riffing with each other but it feels very one-sided and Cliff of all of the people here one clearly has some feelings for Allison but has shoved them way down deep oh, because yeah. he knows that they, they can't go there. And two, uh he he definitely does not want to join in with the abuse of, of Allison, but he is happy to riff and also in in some cases just sort of get into a little shoving match uh with uh, with Jimmy right there in that one room flat. We call it horseplay, Glenn's no- horseplay. Yeah, to the point of knocking over uh, Allison and she burns her arm on the iron. Like, it's it's not good that this is happening. This is not a healthy or, or functional situation. But you do get a sense of how this could have carried on in this way for so long. Yeah, you know, for a guy in Cliff who says that I view myself as keeping the peace, he doesn't do a very good job at it. He really doesn't. But, you know, I think that Cliff, of, of the, all the characters here, he is the one who is least sure of himself. He's supposed to be younger than the, than the others there. He definitely flat out says, if I had not stuck around, these two would have split up ages ago. So he views himself as the architect of their continuing marriage. Not a good thing, Cliff. That's not a thing to be proud of. It makes him the architect behind the ramshackle dwelling that right, they are in. Right, right. You're complicit here, Cliff. You got <laughs> Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, he's he's an enabler, and they are all codependent here. But uh, but then, so what do we make of Helena Charles, who uh, who shows up here? This is Allison's actress friend, who immediately recognizes how fucked up this whole dynamic is. Well, I thought uh, Claire Bloom played Helena very well, and uh, I, I enjoyed that she did not take Jimmy's shit. So Jimmy Jimmy hates Helena, and yeah. she's very aware of how much uh, you know Jimmy hates her, and yeah, she just is like gives it right back to him. And uh, I think that was good. Uh, I like that she wasn't as she didn't wilt like Allison does. You know, Allison like you know folds into herself and gets you know very quiet and just says, "Oh, I just want this. I just want peace." And Helena's like, "Screw you, Jimmy." I think we're gonna need to uh, to dissect that relationship a bit more, and I think we're gonna need to get properly in the spoilers. I figured we would. You know who Before I also like? Go ahead. I liked Hurst, a market inspector. You know, here's, ah. here's a guy just bureaucratic, doing his job, making sure everybody's on the up and up, that the food is 18 inches off the ground. Good man. That's not really how you regard this character, is it? <laughs> He's clearly a corrupt agent of the state who abuses people and collects bribes. Whoa, like, whoa, 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 whoa. The man is keeping peace in the marketplace, a place of high corruption, if allowed, without... You're a guy who says that the market needs to have controls, right? Yes, but the sort of controls this guy... And, will... and Hearst is the control. He has a little booklet that tells like that tells him when people were were at work and you know when things happened and he's making sure that business happens on the up and up on the level. So I think we I need, think we need to talk about what happens with him and, and uh, Mr. Kapoor here, uh, a character played who is in the credits as S. P. Kapoor as himself, and this is his only film credit. So I don't know if they just went down to an actual market town and hired this guy as uh, as uh, to play himself. For his uh, only acting credit, I thought he did fine. He's very good, like, and I think that yeah. he plays an important role in the film because he was a uh, because first of all, I think it it adds an element of we're watching the decline, we're, we're watching the British Empire in decline with this film, and we're watching the working class of the British Empire realizing, oh, we used to have a purpose of going around the world and oppressing other people and, and, Whoa, and hold, hold, maintaining no, this vast mercantilist right empire here. First off, the sun never set on the British Empire because it was an empire of liberty and freedom. Uh, just ask the British Raj how they felt about that as they as they threw off those shackles. Yeah, you know what they said? We were in decline. The Raj were in decline, and the British East, the East India Company propped them up. So, Mr. Kapoor, he was an untouchable back home, and... And here, he can at least run a market stand, which would, which he would not have been able to do back home. But he's still being treated uh, in a he's still being treated unfairly. He's still being treated in a racist manner, not just by the market inspector, but also by by Jimmy's own friends who see this guy as an encroacher. And there's there's no his s- prices are too low. There is no s- he's like the Michael Scott paper company of the market. There's no self awareness on the part of the other members of the market, but but uh, Jimmy himself he understands. He understands that. One, he had some advantages that that Kapoor did not have. He had this investment from uh, from Ma Tanner, uh, put by Edith Evans, an actress who was born in 1888. And if you were to guess whether she outlives uh, some of the younger women in this film, you would be correct. <laughs> yeah, she does. She she lives. For she a, lived to the ripe old age. Uh, I believe she died in 1976. But yeah, I think he understands that despite being working class, despite having this education that he's not able to use in any way that he finds fulfilling. He still realizes in his heart of hearts that he has some advantages in life and that he should not be this angry about everything in his life. Um, and we see that in the way that his attitude shifts toward various characters in the, uh, as, as the film goes on. So I think we're going to need to talk more about that as we get into spoilers here. But he becomes 
almost pleasant at the, by the in the second half of this film, and it's kind of amazing to watch that transformation that Richard Burton has to sell here, and you have to understand the reasons why that occurs um, and what that says about him as a character. So I, I, I think we need to go ahead and jump into spoilers here, but uh, Daniel, any, any final thoughts about the film? Yeah, you know what? I, I really feel like this film showcases just how corrupt universities are <laughs> and how like governors like the great you know rob desantis is is making sure that they're not indoctrinating our youth with bad ideas because richard burton if jimmy porter doesn't go to college maybe he's a pleasant fellow all the time <laughs> so that's what ron why would he be angry? that's what ron desantis is trying in his heart of hearts is trying to prevent his working class people being angry about their situation their place i really it's, 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 is it ron or it's, rob? it's ron but yeah i okay the DeSantis the Great, as he's called in the Republican circles. Uh, no, I, I'm joking. This film, this film is great. It kept my attention the whole time. Uh, I think the performances from you know Richard Burton, Claire Bloom, and Mary Yuri are great. Uh, I was riveted the whole time. That whole triangle relationship was done really, really well. Um, and I, I honestly I had a great time with it. It was stressful. The dialogue is very crisp and very, very well done. Yeah, you definitely don't um, doubt for a second this is based on a play. The dialogue feels very. Oh yeah, it's hundred percent a play, and I love and I love plays. So it was definitely right up my alley. Uh, but boy, it, it was it was quite the watch. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I think that this movie speaks to a certain time and place, but I think that in the way that history rhymes, um, I think that there are plenty of overeducated and underpaid millennials who can maybe relate to what Jimmy is uh, is saying here, even if they can't even if they can't condone his behavior. And to speak to something uh, thematic and to speak to something societal that maintains resonance even uh, you know sixty years later. I think speaks to this film's strengths, even as, uh, you know, this is a character that we're meant to watch destroying his life and, and pushing away everyone that he, that he loves. And, you know, we're not meant to really be rooting for this character, but inexplicably we end up doing that. And I think that we've, you know, all too often, film criticism of the 21st century comes in the form of, do we approve of these characters or do we find their actions to be morally morally upstanding? I don't think that's a meaningful question to ask here. It's, does this story and do these characters tell us something that seems like it's relevant to the society that we live in? And I, and I would say that the answer to that is definitely yes. There are a lot of people who are this angry, and they might be angry about different things, and they might have different things to, to say about it, But uh, and that anger may or may not be well justified. But to explore that anger and to explore the ways in which that anger manifests itself and the ways in which it destroys their, their relationships and their lives and also reveals the unfairness that is present in their lives, I think is, uh, is what gives this movie value. So, yeah, definitely check this out. It's on HBO Max right now. You can, uh, you can go ahead and stream it. And from here on out, spoilers for Look Back in Anger. So we got to talk about the love triangle, I suppose. Daniel, I had already heard this described as a love triangle or a romantic triangle, yeah. so I expected something to happen there, but I didn't know whether it was going to be a love triangle of Cliff, Jimmy, and Helena. Or no, no Cliff, right. Cliff, Jimmy, and Allison, that is. And Helena yeah. was just the onlooker, Jimmy, Helena, and, and Allison. And it ends up being the latter. What did you think of how this played out? <laughs> make me really angry <laughs> uh so I'm, I'm watching it i'm watching that scene develop where so allison has left colonel regford and her father picks her up they jet off 
And uh, Helena is still in the uh, the loft for one night before she moves to another. Yeah, she, she was uh, there. Place to stay. She was there because she had a performance, and she was uh, she's an actress and was there to to just be there right. for a while. And Jimmy bombs her, uh, you know, basically photo bombs her uh, her audition, not audition or rehearsal, and does this like stupid one man you know show stick and like and total very asshole. nearly gets her total... fired is what is implied there, but he doesn't. She she keeps her job barely, right? So like it's just Helena and and Jimmy in this flat and. Uh, Jimmy gets the note, he reads it very quickly, throws it away in disgust, and then they have a really vicious back and forth. Helena ends up slapping her, and I was like, oh no, do not kiss. But you and knew it was Helena, but you knew it was going to happen because I know, I know. I was like, no, like, no, you do not do this. And do not reward this guy. There was more going on in that scene as well. He reads the note and he threatens to kick in Helena's head if she shows her face hey. in front of him again. Like he's threatening violence. He's also, uh, you know, he's st- this is the guy who busted out sycophantic, phlegmatic, and pusillanimous earlier on. Like Richard Burton is pulling off this just feast of dialogue and just rich yeah, SAT, SAT words. But what is not in the note is that Allison is pregnant and Helena knows that. And Helena says, if you'll just, you know, if you'll just stop thinking about yourself for one second, I'm going to tell you something that I think you should know. Your wife is pregnant. And he flat out says he doesn't care. He doesn't care about what his wife, his wife has left him. She's nothing to him at this point. That's at least that is the position that he is willing to argue sincerely at this point. I'm not sure I believe it, but I think the character believes it. Um, in that moment. And and he says he doesn't care. He doesn't care if it's born with two heads. He doesn't care at all. And he tells her to get out. And, uh, and he, his anger is just ramping up and ramping up. He blames her for it. He thinks she's a meddler. And he thinks that the reason why his wife has left is because she's there. And you can see the pain of his wife's departure playing out in that moment there as he calls her an evil-minded little virgin. And she slaps mm-hmm. him. And then in all caps in my notes here I have, and then they fuck. <laughs> right. I was like, no. No, like, like as soon as they lock guys, I'm like, so Jimmy is this, you know, he talks a big game. He's verbally and emotionally abusive. But as soon as he gets slapped in the face, oh, he recoils like a hit puppy. And he flat out says, I abhor physical violence. But at the same time, they are within fight or fuck distance, as they call it, as they call it on the improv stage. She slaps him. And what it turns into is something carnal, them kissing and settling on the bed. And this felt audacious for 1959 this movie was was issued with an x certificate from uh, from whatever london's movie writing body was yeah. at the time um you know the idea of these people having uh you know abortion gets brought up in this film now it's brought up in a way where she asks her doctor hey can we do something about this and the doctor is like i'm gonna pretend <laughs> i didn't fucking just hear that yeah and you will never say this again yeah. you will never repeat this utterance. you will never say or think that again like he's he's morally outraged by the fact that she has brought this up which we know is not Obviously, a doctor reacting in this way was a real thing that could have happened in the 1950s, but we know that was not the end of the story for an upper class. No, she could have easily gotten an abortion elsewhere. Yeah, she just needs to ask the colonel uh, to uh, hook her up with his guy. You know, uh, But yeah, they're having an affair. They're having a sexual affair five seconds after his pregnant wife left him. And that feels scandalous to me looking back here, but it's not as if these things didn't happen. It's just we're not accustomed to seeing them depicted in film because film culture of the time feels so buttoned up. It feels so yeah. unreal. It feels like we, we dare not go there, even if it feels real. And that is what I felt watching this film was this feels real. It feels very ill-advised, but it feels real. I just didn't think that, uh, I didn't think Jimmy deserved any sort of happiness. Well, fuck deserved. Did you believe that moment from those characters? Yes. I mean, it was only because of their acting. Like, they, they, they did a really good job selling the scene. The thin line between love and hate is a trope, 
but it's a trope that they managed to sell. Like, you have to believe that this yeah. guy has some innate charm and appeal. Otherwise, we can't watch him abuse all of these people and not wonder, how is this? How does this guy even have a family to begin with? Right, he's definitely very charming, and, and I imagine, like, you know, he's easy on the eyes, right? Like, you know, Richard Burton, good-looking guy. I can definitely see his appeal, but he's just such a mean asshole. Like, why would anyone want to be with him? Yeah. He's also poor. Nobody likes poor people. I think that there is a definite change in his attitude about life. There's definitely change in his attitude about romance, because we're meant to believe that a few months have passed here, because, uh, you know, Allison is farther along in her pregnancy and has been staying with her parents for a while when we see her again. And at this point, uh, Helena and Jimmy are in a full-on romance, and she says that she loves him, apparently for the first time, and Jimmy seems happy. And Cliff just seems miserable, because one, he feels as if he's a party to something that he can't approve of at this point. He doesn't approve of their affair. And he also feels somewhat responsible for it, I guess. Uh, you know, being being their lodger who was keeping their marriage together, he obviously must have failed if their marriage has, has fallen apart. To the extent that we get into Cliff's inner life, I think that's about as far as it gets. Well, and Cliff also doesn't get on with Helena uh, as well. Correct. And uh, he definitely had quite the thing for, for Allison. So I, I, I can imagine, like, if, if somebody knew, like, if you had, like, this really close-knit relationship with two people, and then one of those people gets swapped out. Yeah. Like, it was like, oh, where do I fit here? Like, I knew where I fit in previously, but now I don't really know what I'm I think he is outraged for. on Allison's behalf, even though... He feels like an interloper, which is an interesting character choice here, because neither member of this marriage seems keen to preserve it. But this third party who has been there this whole time feels a responsibility uh, to make that happen. So I, I found that very interesting, but we, we don't really get too far into Cliff's head. It's really just about Jimmy and how his attitude changes um, as, he, as his well, romance with Helena. Yeah, we basically relive that opening scene, except that it's way more pleasant because Helena can like deal with his barbs a bit better than Allison could. I also think that his barbs are not directed at Helena. I don't think that he has quite so much of a stick up his ass about how she treats him, how she thinks of him. I think he has a better, I think he has a healthier sense of what her attitude about him is at this point. He's yeah. at least okay with it. Um, and the two of them are just having a raucous sex and alcohol fueled uh, affair. You know, they hop on the train, they go to the airport bar, they order a double scotch. Like they're just having a, they're just having a ball together. And that's all he regards it as. So it's inherently lower stakes to him. When she tries to do things like pass information, like he, she's sending letters to her friend, Allison, and we learn that she has already confessed the affair. Because this is the second letter uh, in question here. And in the second letter, the one she tears up and does not send, it's where she says, in truth, I love him in spite of himself. And he, he definitely has a moment where he, or in spite of myself, he definitely has a moment where he takes that personal and he's like, in spite of myself or despite my better judgment. But he doesn't get so far into that he doesn't he's not enraged that she said this about him he's just like oh well it doesn't matter you're just my side piece anyway like that seems to be the the attitude there is that he doesn't care quite so much what helena thinks of him and well, he's not married to helena yeah and and helena attempts to encourage him attempts to say hey you don't have to be this miserable you don't have to work in the sweet shop for the rest of your life you could be ambitious you could do something else and he proceeds to go off on one of his rants uh, where he talks about being an upper crust lord coming out of number 10 being on the being in all the tabloids like it's a it's a very be it's a wonderful richard burton monologue but it feels much less barbed it feels more like it feels revelatory to me because he's revealing that the reason why he doesn't have any dreams or ambitions is not because he has this upper crust wife looking down on him all the time because fundamentally he thinks he wouldn't make it if he tried well it's clear like you know 
in that one of the the first thing in the market, he uh, was like Jelly Bellies or Jelly something. He buys a whole like a bulk of them because he's like it's gonna be a thing. Like kids want it, uh, and then he ends up with with a surplus afterwards because the trend passed. So maybe he isn't as smart and savvy as he thinks he is. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, what it comes down to is that he hates himself and that he's dissatisfied with his life, but he thinks it's his own fault. I think that's what I come away from this second half with, is that he's able to be happy with somebody that he doesn't think is judging him all the time. But I think that that's not the fault of Allison. That's the fault of him hating himself this whole time and not being able to find happiness with the person that he's with. I figured for you, the moment that was going to be like, you know, uh, jumping the shark a little bit for Jimmy in terms of your respect and expectations for him are when he talked through the movie in the theater. Because ah. I, I know I've been there with you when there's a when there's a talker, and you get very indignant. And you're like, no, no, you shut up, sir, and watch your movie. So I felt like the guy in front of Jimmy in that scene was you. <laughs> and especially, like, if you don't like this country, you should leave. I was like, yeah, that's something, that's something Glenn would say. As soon as I was finished watching the movie, I looked up what movie they were watching at the time, because it was definitely something that was meant to be the height of the British Empire, mowing down the natives and imposing their will on them. And it was, no, it was no, 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 not mowing down the natives. Dude, they were mowing down the natives Sh- in that show. Showing show. a little bit of firmness, a little bit of discipline. You know, sometimes the natives get out of hand and you have to kind of, you know, give them a little bit of a spanking. So it was a film from the 1930s called Gunga Din, which uh, stars Cary Grant. It's a film I've actually heard of, but it's definitely one of these, like, let's go on an adventure and it doesn't really matter who we kill while we're there kind of kind of films. And reviewing this at the same time as Fast and Furious 9, I was just like, ah, so Roman going and mowing down a bunch of members of the Mexican army is nothing new. Uh, just us caring about it is what's new. <laughs> there was a moment with the... Uh... Colonel Redfern, where Allison is comparing and contrasting her father with Jimmy. And, you know, she says that, you know, you're mad because basically the time has changed and you can't. And he's mad and Jimmy's mad because things haven't changed at all. And what Colonel Redfern says is that he knew it was all over when they left India, right? Uh, and that was when India became independent, which was in the 50s, I believe. And that was, and they talked about the American age very early on in the film. That, you know, the UK, the sun has set, you know, on, on the empire, uh, that the, the U.S. has it's, pushed It's nice uh, of you Britain. to finally acknowledge that, Daniel. No, no, I mean, like, I'm saying what they're saying, not what I believe. Uh, <laughs> I know they're saying, like, you know, because the U.S. pushed for the empire to dissolve uh, after World War II. Uh, and, and the U.K. was in a position where they could probably say no. So they kind of, you know, acquiesced to these independence movements. So, like... The UK is a very different place during the 1950s, and I could definitely see, like, you know, with, with communism and the Cold War, that there's probably a lot of, you know, anger, because there was a communist party in the UK for a long time, and I think it still exists, just it's very, very tiny. Uh, and, and definitely, Jimmy is supposed to be a socialist. So, uh, him being angry at the system and how things haven't changed and how, like, this everything about his life and politics and everything and religion. It definitely makes sense as to why he's so angry uh, for the time. He just doesn't have a good way, a good avenue of expressing his anger. <laughs> and he needs a hobby. Jimmy needs a hobby. Jimmy needs QAnon, I think. Oh, he would be, he'd be a big Q guy. He'd be all up in Q for days. I, I think that we could definitely go down a rabbit hole of comparing Jimmy's anger to the anger of the modern right-wing populist movement, but I think we'd be t- talking for another hour and my wife would murder me, so we should probably stop there. But uh, Why don't we wrap this up with our, our final scene? Well, yeah, let's, so final scene in the train station here. So uh, the train station bar. So they run into Allison there, and the very first thing Jimmy does is he tells Helena... 
Helena, your friend, your friend's here to see you. And then he just fucks off. Like he doesn't even acknowledge. Uh, he, he's essentially disowned his wife at this point. He uh, he doesn't acknowledge her as somebody that he knows, which is really disturbing to see when it happens. And it's real quick. R- Richard Burton like flipping a switch. He's like, I'm not even mad. I just don't know you. And he fuck it, And he fucks off. And in light of what happens in the very next scene, that was that was really something. <laughs> Uh, I mean, what do you what do you make of his uh, of of what ultimately happens here? I mean, I understand Helena's decision that this is not a relationship that can go anywhere. This is not a relationship in which they can ultimately be satisfied with it because it was founded in this way on the destruction of this marriage. But how do we have the two of them back together again after this is over with and after after she has suffered a personal tragedy of a miscarriage as well? Well, Jimmy's biggest beef with his wife was that she's never suffered that she's you know lived her life in comfort while he is had to toil and, and work hard and, and suffer and blah 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 so now allison has had a horrible tragedy and now i guess jimmy can see her as a person yeah, jimmy uh, doesn't even I, make that connection initially she makes that connection allison has a monologue in which she says basically now that i've gone through this i understand what it's like to be you basically it feels very old-timey. It feels very old-fashioned, like this is the worst tragedy that can happen to a woman is a miscarriage. And, uh, you know, the idea that marriage, family, and babies is the only things that are, are the only things that women are allowed to, uh, to shoot for, the only ambitions they're allowed to have. That's obviously not what this movie is about. This is not striving to, uh, to dissect the, w- the role of women in British society at this time. Their role is just kind of assumed from beginning to end in this film. But ultimately, um, the idea that she uses that to relate to his suffering, I found pretty interesting. Um, I, I'm not sure that I buy him coming back then. Yeah, I, I, like they had to wrap up the, you know, it's a play, right? So they have to wrap up the scene and, and have some sort of a conclusion. And I guess Jimmy accepts her because she suffered now, and that he he realizes that, you know, she's flawed, and they're both flawed, and that they could uh, go back to being bear and squirrel in their uh, pseudo furry sexcapades. The the extent to which we get any friendly dialogue between them is this little game where they're pretending to be animals, and they talk about their different animal features, and that apparently was part of their courtship, and that's all fine. But most of when we had seen that previously, it was like, we're bears and squirrels, and we're happy, we're having happy, fun squirrel parties together. And then, like, he's hollering at her literally five seconds later. Like, like it, does, <laughs> it doesn't last. So... That's what I keep coming back to with this ending is it's not meant to be permanent in any way. Like the fact that he's able to make this adjustment and and see her again. I don't know. It feels like an act of desperation in the same way that kissing Helena in the first place was, you know, he's just clinging on to whatever woman is, is willing to stand his presence for, uh, for the amount of time it takes to live with him. So I don't look, I don't view this, uh, this as a real reconciliation. I just view this as him moving on to the next thing. And the next thing is the previous thing. Like you said, it doesn't, it didn't feel permanent. It felt like they're going to get back together and give it another try. But without Cliff uh, to be kind of a, a neutral party. The glue. Who knows how long it lasts. And that's what, you know, I don't think this is a movie that you're meant to look back on with hope. You're meant to look back on it with, uh, with I don't know, something else besides hope. Maybe just despair. Possible possible anger. Like this Should is, we be looking back on anger? Like this is capturing a time and place in which people, in which large swaths of people are set up to fail by their by their circumstances. And Jimmy is not a good person. He's not making good choices. He's not making the best of, of what his situation is. But it is also true that he is being set up to fail here. And I think that this movie straddles that, that sort of nuanced position very well. Yeah, I, I quite enjoy watching it, even though I guess tragic, you know, you know piece uh, throughout but boy, you know, what, what a good pick that we had. This was, uh, I, I went down a rabbit hole of, like, kitchen sink dramas and, like, this John Osborne fella and, like, how much he hated women and, like, all these actors. Like, I knew Richard Burton, but I didn't know, you know, the other actors in this film. 
What I knew about Richard Burton was that he had a well-publicized relationship with Liz Taylor that blew up at, at some point. That's literally all I know about. It. I don't think I've seen him in a. I believe I believe he was actually with Claire Bloom at one point too. Oh, was that right? The, the, the yeah, the actress who played Helena. Uh, well, Claire Bloom is one of the few members of the cast of this film that is uh, still alive. Uh, there, uh, there's one. I believe uh, Hearst, the market inspector, is actually. All, oh no, he died in '95. There was one other that I that I checked on here that is uh, that is still kicking. Gary Raymond, who played Cliff, is actually. Yes, yes. Well, it's hard to kill a Welsh person. But you, you were going to say something about Claire Bloom? Uh, no, I was going to say something about Hearst. God bless Hearst. <laughs> you know, I mean, he kept the market going, kept it humming along. When that, you know, you know, Kapoor fellow was trying to undercut the pricing and put out hardworking businessmen. Good, good man. Yeah, I, I appreciated the the whole plot line with Kapoor because in the same way that we're meant, I mean, we're meant to see in multiple ways that Jimmy's anger is not really objectively justifiable or not fair, but he can still be in a, there can still be people worse off than him and he can still have, have sort of a, a, a righteous cause for his anger, even if he's surrounding himself with people that are probably more miserable than he is because of his well, words and actions. I mean, so he, he, he makes this point, right, with Kapoor. Uh, and he's like, you got to stick up for yourself. You have to fight back. And Kapoor's like, nah, I'm not going to do it. I'll just move to the next town. And Jimmy doesn't like saying, come live in my flat. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you in and we're going to work through this together. Like, once Cliff leaves, like, Kapoor could have been a second man for his, uh, you know, his taffy stand. That's true. I don't know. Maybe he was looking for somebody who could pay the same rent as Cliff. And uh, with those low, low prices, maybe, uh, maybe Mr. Kapoor could do it. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, I I I like that that scene and that dynamic too because you got you got a sense that uh you know Jimmy was was angry at the system, not just his wife. But mo- but he took it out on his wife. But he was mostly angry at the system. All right. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of Look Back in Anger, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail dot com. Uh, Daniel, I'm really enjoying checking out these old films uh, with you alongside the blockbusters. I think this is going to become a semi permanent feature of the uh, of the podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying uh, going back and revisiting these films that I never would have watched otherwise. And the fact that this was a, you know, UK play from the 50s adapted to a movie that was really, really successful that I've never heard of. It's great. Most definitely. And of course, you can check out Look Back in Anger on HBO Max, as I mentioned. Thank you for tuning in to filmmock.net and have a good night. Good night.